Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Jetsama Akon Lamo gave this teaching Christmas Eve 1995. In it, she describes the hope and fear that is magnified during the holiday season, using it as a way to understand the habits of our minds. During the holiday season, our minds become even more unstable than usual, according to Jetsama. Our hopes and fears increase. The more we grasp outwardly and try to secure what we want, the less happy we will be. Jetsama discusses a compassionate way of life as a way to true and lasting happiness. I think that uh, it's very difficult in such an affluent country as ours to remember that this is not the way it is in the rest of the world. That uh, most of the world does not live in a country that has as much affluence as we do. It's not only the children, it's most of the members of the human race. And I find that particularly moving and particularly interesting at a time when you see what you see when you go shopping for Christmas presents this time of year. So that's what I'd like to talk a little bit about today, about the experience that we have during the holiday season. Many of us here in America are celebrating something of our holiday season here. We celebrate it for different reasons. Some of us are celebrating Christmas. Some of us are celebrating Hanukkah. There are many different holidays that fall around this time of year. But at any rate, in a general sense, this is the holiday season. This is the season for joyfulness and celebration and happiness. And yet, when you go to the stores and do your Christmas shopping, well, first of all, it's a nightmare. (laughs) And you can't park. These are the real difficulties associated with Christmas. (laughs) There are no parking spaces. What you see in the store is a, is a combination of, of two main different ways of, of, of relating to Christmas, or main, two main focuses that one would experience. You see one type of person who is, who is obviously trying to cram all the jolly they can into the season. You see them wearing Christmas sweaters or Christmas Santa hats or something like that. And you know that we have been taught that this is the season for happiness and joy. And, and during this season, a lot of times, families will let down their barriers against each other. They will come together for the meal that we all dread. And <laughs> well, some of us, anyway. And uh, they come together for the meal that, that some of us dread. And then and after having that, uh, we, try to, we try to really see each other with new eyes. We try to put in the extra effort that is required to understand the different members of our family because it's difficult. It's difficult. Sometimes we grow up with people and we feel that there's a very different ideology or perspective about many different things. It's sometimes very taxing. But we try very hard this time of year to let down our defenses, to really appreciate one another, to try to communicate better 
uh, old grudges and ideas that we have about what we have and don't have and what we've been given and what we haven't been given, generally we try to relax this, these kinds of ideas at, at this time of year. It's interesting that we would pick one certain time of year to try to relax these ideas and to try to give a little bit more, to try to open the doors, to not be so hard, to not be so demanding. It's interesting that we would do that at one point during the year. That because of convention, because of the idea that in our culture this is what we do, because of the idea that we have some religious training, or at least enough, to tell us that this should be a time of giving and generosity and compassion. Because of those few ideas that we have, we save this as the particularly important time when we can break down some of our barriers and, and loosen up a bit. So we have the kind of person during this holiday season who is trying to make the best of it. Often, I must say, with that kind of idea, there's a kind of almost hysterical insistence on succeeding with this. Uh, it, it's almost a maniacal kind of jolly. Uh, it, it's, um, it's a do or die. If you don't do it this time of year, you won't get it right any other time of year. Uh, basically, Christmas is the time when you feel like if there is no other time, at least there will be Christmas. At least you know you can give a gift, you can receive a gift. There will be some kind of exchange. So we hold up great hopes for this, kind, for this time of year. Many of us look forward to Christmas as being a time when some of our hopes and wishes can be fulfilled. Maybe not in terms of material goods or maybe even in terms of material goods but also in terms of being together with the people that we either know that we love and, 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 and can't really keep up with on a regular basis, or the people that we are forced to be with because we are related to them in some way. I mean, and some people do feel like that. It really isn't a joke. There are many people who feel that way. <clears throat> but we look forward to Christmas as a time of hope. And during that time, there's very little mental stability and the reason why is because we have so much hope and so much fear that the mind becomes even more unstable than it ordinarily is. And, and like I said, we sort of maniacally try to compress as much joy as we can into the Christmas season, thinking that this is the time and there won't be any other joy. And then there is the other kind of person who is very cynical about Christmas. Uh, we feel... Not so happy about it because we realize that Christmas is the time when we get to run our credit cards down. Christmas is the, is the time of year to go into debt, and the rest of the year is recovery. That's the case with many of us, I know. <laughs> we can most of us relate. <laughs> Christmas is the time of year to pull out your hair and try to figure out, in this vast supermarket of things to get, how can you possibly satisfy a child who sees commercials? There's no way. There's absolutely no way. Plus, you've been listening for about a month to the, can I have that? Can I have that? Everything on TV. And, you, and you, if, you're, if you're like me, um, you, well, I, my, my answer generally is, well, theoretically, yes. <laughs> Will it actually happen? We don't know. But in theory, you can so that's how I answer that mantra. But most of us are, 
most of it's kind of like a little puja that goes on in my house all the time. Can I have this? Theoretically, yes. It's kind of call and response, you know. So, and then, you know, we're, we're worried, uh, you know, what does mom want? What does pop want? What do, what do, it's just very, very difficult and very confusing. And nothing else about our lives lightens up in order to make room for this. We still have laundry. We still have kids. We still have jobs. We still have lives. And on top of that, there's all this other extra effort. And also, it happens that because most of us, at least at some periods during our life, are in the first category that I talked about, the people who are trying very hard to be happy and to break down the walls and to be joyful during this period, we have at least tried to do that, if not one, then many different seasons throughout the course of our lives. And since we have not understood that this is not the method to obtain happiness, we have, on a repeated basis, been disappointed during the holiday season. And we haven't even understood our disappointment. Many of us think that maybe it's because we didn't get everything we want. Or maybe it's because during this time we are reminded that we don't have everything we want. Uh, the interesting thing about Christmas and, and all and about this season, this holiday season and all that it means, is that we are often in a very poignant way reminded of exactly what our lives exist of, what they consist of. And, and we can see for some reason more clearly because we are taking account of blessings and we are trying to obtain happiness where the lacks and deficits are in our lives. And so oftentimes during Christmas, people become very sad. They feel like their family relationships are not close enough or they don't experience the love or caring in their lives that they would like to. And many of us have tried to be happy during Christmas time by, uh, making as much merry as possible. And then in the cold dawn of the new year, we discover that it really hasn't been that much fun. And in fact, it's been pretty stressful and maybe we've spent too much money. And, and there are lots of kind of realizations and contacts and, 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 and interconnected ideas that come about at this season that we process through after the season itself is over. We might find that after time, after, after experiencing several seasons like that, we become a little bit sad and a little bit maybe cynical. Well, we try not to show it, and we hardly ever admit to it, but the feeling sneaks in. It sneaks in like, what is this all about? What is this maniacal event all about? And why does it end? This whole scenario happens in this way in this country simply because we do not understand what the causes of happiness actually are. And so we don't know how to produce the result of happiness. This is what the Buddha has taught, that all sentient beings literally are, are in, in an equal way, in a very determined way, trying very hard to be happy. Each one of us wants to be happy. That's the one thing that we share. We may be different colors, sizes, genders, religions. We may be different mentally. We may be different in every conceivable way. But we all share one thing. We all wish to be happy. And we share another unfortunate fact, which is the flip side of that. Most of us don't know how to be happy. We haven't had that much experience with it, and we don't understand clearly cause and effect relationships. So for us during this season, or at any time when we are trying harder to be happy, our effort consists of more grabbing 
more I want it this way and I want it that way. And even if you're, even if you're the one buying the presents, you might say, well, I'm buying the presents, but I want dinner to look like this. I want the day to look like this. I want my family to look like this. We have these ideas, and what we try to do at a time like this is to grab even harder, to grab for everything we can, to try to nail down as much jolly as we possibly can. And uh, even in terms of being generous to our families, in a way, our families are kind of an extension of our egos. That's another kind of grabbing. It looks a little better in the public eye, but it's another kind of grabbing. I myself am guilty of that. I love to buy presents for my family. And then ultimately we discover that we're not so happy. Well, if we examine the Buddhist teachings a little bit further, of course the Buddha didn't give any direct teachings on Christmas. <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> it hadn't happened yet while he was here. Uh, he might possibly have tried to give some teachings on Hanukkah, but it just wasn't his gig. <laughs> so we have to look at the Buddha's general teachings on what makes us happy. And we discover that the Buddha teaches us that the cause for happiness is kindness, generosity, giving happiness to others. The cause of happiness truly is compassion and the freedom from ego clinging. We think that the cause of happiness is to get all of these props, these component parts. And it's not that we're so rich that we think like that, that we're somehow tainted by riches, although that does sometimes happen. Believe me, in the countries where people eat only this much rice every day, they, are, they may be convinced that this much rice would do it. If I could just have enough to fill my belly, I would be happy. But you know how it is, once the belly's filled... Then we've got to feed the heart. I have enough rice. Now I'd like a little love. Now I have some love. I'd like some toys. Now that I have some toys, I'd like some clothes. Now that I have some shoes, I'd like another pair. And it kind of gets like that. And here in this country, we have the same idea. Uh, if, 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 if I had everything that I needed, I would simply be happy somehow. Well, the Buddha teaches us that, in fact, this is not the cause for happiness. That, in fact, when we think like that, the more that we grasp or hold on to or solidify object, separating object from subject, the more that we think with that kind of dualistic mind, the more we cling to self-nature as being inherently real, the heavier and more constricted, more hooked and bound the mind actually becomes. Whereas if one were not to meditate on one's own needs constantly, if one were to give rise to true compassion, to really let go of ego clinging to the degree that a good day is a day in which we serve sentient beings, a successful day, a full day, is a day in which compassion is not only thought of and contemplated, but a day in which there actually is an extension into the environment that is beneficial for sentient beings. And, and here's the ticket, you know, here's where we fall short. You can ask anybody in the world, do they like the idea of kindness? Oh, absolutely they like the idea of kindness. Particularly, we, li we like the idea of others being kind toward us. 
That's a particularly happy thought. But even so, we like the idea that everyone would be kind to one another. And maybe we might think about it, and maybe we might send out holiday cards that show that, that we'd like to be kind, and maybe we might talk about it. There's lots of maybes here, but how many of us actually spend a portion of our days in the practice of kindness toward others? What do we actually do? Where does your hand touch the environment and make the environment better? And I'm not talking about within the small context of our private nest, our homes. We're going to be happy, you know, kind to our families most of the time because that makes, us, that makes our home better. It's an extension of our egos. Our home is so much a part of us that it's, it's a difficult thing to tell the difference between where, you know, where, where is it that I personally end and this immediate intimate environment. Where does it begin? The home is part of oneself. One sees oneself reflected in the home. One sees oneself reflected in the family. And so we naturally do try to nurture and take care of our families. There's always some kindness there. But is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about the kind of kindness that a mother dog has for her children? A mother dog nurses her children. She, she cares for her children. She protects her children. And then she lets them go when it's time for them to grow up. And we do that also. And that is definitely part of our lives. It is not to be ignored. It is not to be diminished in any way. But perhaps because we are human beings, perhaps we can look beyond the immediacy of our own lives and ask ourselves, how, in what way do we actually touch our environment and make it better? We don't think like that. You see, we think about compassion. We meditate on compassion. We take the bodhisattva vow and we do it with such meaning, you know, till tears come in our eyes. We think about what the Buddha has taught and we think, oh yes, I do want to be a benefit to sentient beings. But when it comes down to actually lifting the finger or inconveniencing oneself in the slightest, this is what we do not do. We do not go forth into the world and make the world an actual better place. And so, in that way, the, the understanding of compassion and the, and the meditation on compassion, <clears throat> there may be some benefit in that, in that perhaps it's like putting money in the bank or planting seeds. In the future, something will blossom out of that. But there isn't so much benefit to where it would actually change, one, change one's life. When compassion really begins to change the life is when we actually practice it. When we actually care for others, take care of others. When we actually open our eyes, this is something we haven't even done yet at, at holiday season or any other time. When we open our eyes and examine who are the people with needs. Most of the time our eyes are closed and we don't even ask ourselves. In our world, even around us, in our community, in our country, and in our planet, who are the people that have the needs? And how can I help? How can I actually enter into their lives and provide a comfort for them or an addition for them, uh, some friendship, something? Even to the point where 
we walk around day after day and think how much we would like to be kind and we would like to be uh, contributing to the happiness of the world, but we don't even bother to smile at strangers. And you don't know but what that stranger has no one else in their lives to smile at them. Now, I've had the experience, haven't you, where you'll go someplace in a public place and for no reason whatsoever, someone will look at you and just give you a smile. It isn't like, hmm, but they give you a smile. You can feel it. It's a gift. It's, it's, it's a welcome to the world. I'm glad you're here. I really like you kind of smile. It's a genuine gift. And I have walked home from a situation like that. It made my day. It literally made my day. And it's something that I'll remember for a long time. How much do we even do that? We don't think like that. We always think, gimme, 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 I need, I need, I need. Interestingly, the Buddha teaches that the more we meditate and concentrate on what we need and say, give it to me, give it to me, that kind of thing, the more we do that, the heavier, more dualistic, more contracted, more non-virtuous our mind becomes. And this is the mind that is the, the incubator, the nest, by which unha- in which unhappiness is born. This is an unhappy mind. And it doesn't matter what you have in your life. You could have every new car on the market and every kind of clothing and every kind of delicious food and the absolute best Potomac house. We're talking the three, four million Potomac houses. You could have the absolute best of all of it. And if the mind is heavy, filled only with self-concern, grasping and needy, if the mind has no training, it is a heavy, constricted, dark bed from which rises only unhappiness. Only unhappiness. And if you don't believe me, ask the people who have just about everything. Now, the Buddha teaches us, however, that if we stop, if we cease constantly meditating on the inherent reality of self-nature, and therefore cease meditating on self-need, if we can pacify the habitual tendency of grasping, and you must understand that the tendency to grasp, I have to tell you there are many people that will say to me, that say to me, well, that's just how I am. I've always been that way. It's a compulsion. It's a neurotic tendency. And when they say that to me, they basically are putting it in a box, locking it up in a high place where no one can reach it, most especially themselves. It cannot be challenged. It is sacred cow stuff. Well, if you argue for your unhappiness, it's yours. No one's going to take it away from you. So there it is, locked up in the safe of your mind, where you also are locked up. Now the Buddha teaches us if instead, if we, if we, if we do not argue for our limitations in that way, if instead we study and accordingly find out that we are inherently all Buddha nature. And that means that the reality, or, or the idea, I should say, of self-nature being inherently real is simply not the case, according to the Buddhist teachings. Yes, we perceive the subjective and objective. 
we perceive self-nature as being inherently real, and so we perceive everything else as being other than self. That is our perceptual situation right now. But according to the Buddhist teaching, our nature is the pure primordial wisdom state. That state which is free of contrivance, free of discursive thought, free of the separation between self and other. It is sheer, uncontrived luminosity. But that is our true nature. And within that, there is no idea of self. There is no idea of that thing which is separate from other. Because that primordial wisdom state, which is our true nature, that Buddha nature, is completely uncontrived, cannot be separated. There is no subjective and objective in that natural state. If we could meditate on that and then begin to act appropriately, to begin to create new habit patterns, and you must understand, if you sit around waiting for that to be natural for you, it will never happen. Please believe me on this. This is the fault and the mistake of most practitioners. We have the idea that we should maybe uh, learn a little bit about religion or about the Buddhist teachings or something like that, and then sit back and wait for the magic to happen. Well, where is the magic going to happen from? From out there somewhere? Is a, is a star going to come and fall on your head and give you just the right kind of concussion in the right place? So that maybe your mind will turn a little bit? Do you think someday you're going to eat some special food that's going to be so delicious that it's going to just, you know, leave your taste buds and go up into your brain somehow and change the way you think? Do you think someday you're going to find just the right car that's going to drive you to the place where you will change? Or do you think someday you'll be sitting there peacefully? Not that we can until we do practice, but anyway, be sitting there peacefully and, and uh, suddenly the feeling will come. And this is what most people think, that eventually the feeling will come. I have the feeling, you know. It's this emotional relationship that, that we think we're going to have where something, some happiness or something will be inspired in our life. It's probably when that special boyfriend or girlfriend is going to show up. You know, or that special relationship's going to show up. At that moment, I'm sure that I'll get the feeling to be really kind and generous to others. That'll do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just like it has before. And uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so the fault is that we're sitting here and we're waiting for something to come to us. Whereas if we really examine the Buddhist teachings, we find out that this idea of happiness, this idea of moving towards happiness or giving rise to happiness through acts of generosity, this idea of not clinging to self-nature and then therefore not clinging to so much neediness and graspiness and, and having our whole lives be run about by desire. We have this idea that, uh, that this is just going to happen to us naturally, but the Buddha teaches us that what we have to do is to create a habit.
Because what we have now, reduced to its simplest way of, of, of understanding it, what we have now are simply a bad case of some of the worst habits one can possibly have. We have terrible habits. We have terrible thinking habits. We have terrible perception habits. We have terrible activity habits. We have the habit of meditating on the inherent reality and solidity of self-nature. And assuming from that 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 means everybody should make nicey-nicey and give to you. That's the habit that we have. We have the habit of thinking that happiness should come to us from outside. That somebody, and we know who they are, is responsible for making us happy. You, you think about it. There are people in your life who you have tagged as being responsible for making you happy. It's their job. Why don't they understand that? <laughs> and if that doesn't work, we'll find somebody else who does. So we have that kind of idea. <clears throat> Basically, the person who has that kind of idea and the person who has the idea of generosity, they, they're not so different. In fact, they're not different at all. According to the Buddhist teaching, in their nature, they are exactly the same. In fact, they are inseparable. The real difference between these two is habitual tendency. Interestingly, that makes the creation of happiness doable. It makes us understand that we have the technology. It makes us understand that happiness is possible literally for anyone, no matter what their personal situation is. So that's the good news. <clears throat> but the bad news is that we hate to think that something as wondrous and as magical and as romanticized as happiness, something as fantastic as meditating on what would be like if everything felt complete and I had all that I needed and I just felt so happy? What, what, what if we, the, the great mystery and romance of happiness, the bad news is that we find out that it's not a mystery and it's not that romantic. It's like anything else. It works if you work it. Happiness is nothing more than habit. And it is the habit of thinking and perceiving in a certain way. The Buddha teaches us that if we, if we loosen up on the idea of self-nature being inherently real and begin to practice some of the meditations and contemplations and thereby begin to see the equality of all that lives, if we let go of our prejudice and our bigotry, if we do not see others as being better or worse than us, if we do not think that because one person lives a certain way they are inferior, or has a certain color skin, they are inferior. If, in fact, we go out of our way to try to provide a way of happiness for others, if we suddenly stop turning our eyes into ourselves constantly and look out at the world for a change, not with our hands out like this, but just to see that there are people around us within our reach that could use our friendship, could use our support, could use some help. There are people in our country that are hungry. There are people that are sick that can care for themselves. 
that need help caring for themselves. There's so much to do. If we were to look out like that and develop that habit, that we would be happy because our minds would be light. They would be more expansive, filled with this radiance and luminosity that naturally occurs, that is our natural state. When we are not involved in the heavy contraction of self-absorption. You see, we don't have to build happiness. We don't have to create it from nothing as though it didn't exist. We don't have to build or create the kind of nature that is spontaneously filled with bliss and joy and happiness. That nature is our nature. In the natural state, free of contrivance, free of ego clinging, free of self-cherishing, expressing the natural outpouring of bodhicitta, which appears in the world as the most extraordinary compassion, that is what we are. That is our nature. We are like that. It doesn't have to be built or created. And there is no one, no sentient being in this or any other world who has been so rotten to the core that they could have found a way to destroy that fundamental luminous, pure, uncontrived Buddha nature. It is completely indestructible. It cannot be diminished or even tarnished in any way. But what we can do is to pile a lot of crap on top of it. That's what we can do. We can create a lot of habitual tendencies that make our eyes completely incapable of being awake to our natural state. And of course, the only alternative to the mind being in its natural state, which is happy and blissful, is the other, and that is unhappiness. And a constant thrum of an unnamed, indescribable longing that we all feel. According to the Buddhist teaching, the more we grasp outwardly and try to secure what we want and try to stop the voice of that longing, the more we try to do that, the less happy we will be. Because what is actually happening there is we are turning away from our fundamental, primordial nature. Our nature is not like that. Our nature does not contract itself, turn itself inward, meditate on itself in, in, in a way, in that way, because... In our nature, there is no separation between self and other. There is no idea of the inherent reality of self-nature. There is no solidity associated with that. The mind in the natural state is quiescent, light, weightless. Like a sourceless, 
and goalless state of being, beingness, beyond even where one can say, I am being that. This state is free of any such conceptualization, any such contrivance. This state, although it cannot be described directly, is less like a human being with its eyes turned inward and its arms holding what it has and reaching and grabbing for more than it is like perhaps the brightest star in all the heavens, the brightest sun. You think about our sun, what does our sun do? It sends out, it, send, it never pulls back, it sends out rays of heat and light and nurturing. We're more like that, although that doesn't really describe us either. In our nature, we are something that is completely free of all of the causes of unhappiness, free of any of the contrivance that brings about the habitual tendency of self-cherishing and ego-clinging. In our natural state, we are the pure, uncontrived Buddha. And the Buddha's only display is that of ceaseless, unlimited, all-pervasive love. The Buddha gives rise to activity. We see the presence of the Buddha nature in the world. We see that in the forms of the great bodhisattvas who, who come again and again and again to the world not because they need to, not because they are here out of the kind of delusion and, and, and faulty thinking and, and habitual tendency that ordinary sentient beings are here for. It is that desire, that ego clinging that lands us back in samsara every single time because samsara is literally a display of that ego clinging. These bodhisattvas do not come to the world for that reason. They come to the world deliberately, with great love and compassion. And literally everything they do, no matter what it looks like, is an act of love. And ultimately, because they are the very impetus of compassion, they are the very breath of the bodhicitta, they are the display of the Buddha nature, which can only be the great bodhicitta. Because of that, every single activity that they engage in will ultimately result in good for sentient beings. Every single activity. The Buddha teaches us that this is what we should aspire to, that in the beginning we create good habitual tendencies by studying the lives of these masters. How is it that they have brought about such happiness? How is it that they constantly give rise to compassion? How have they practiced? How do they think? And in the beginning, we begin to create the habit of being like that. In the beginning, that will not make us happy. And the reason why is that we have not had enough time to change our habitual tendencies. In the beginning, it will be difficult. And it will feel a little bit unnatural. 
Because normally we think, like I said, what, what can I get? What do I need? What are you going to do for me today? You who are responsible for my happiness. What can you give me today? Where's the hit? Where's the buzz? Where's the thing I need? Instead of thinking like that, we begin to practice thinking the way the bodhisattvas think. The bodhisattvas meditate on the suffering of the world. They see, they open their eyes. I mean, it's not hard. You just have to open your eyes and look somewhere besides inside yourself. And they see the happiness of the world and it becomes to them unbearable and they begin to act. They begin to act accordingly. And so in the beginning, we may try to do that. And what's going to happen is that we have the old habitual tendency of, I don't have, this is what I need, and you better give it to me. And now we're on top of that. We're trying to place, almost as though we're taking one thing and putting it on top of another, we're trying to place this new habit of thinking like, how can I make the world better? How can I be of benefit to sentient beings? So in the meantime, in the beginning, these two things will compete with one another. And you will feel a little bit sort of stretched. Like on the one hand, you, you have your own needs to deal with. And on the other hand, you're trying to develop this new habitual tendency. So at first, the tendency will be to let go of that. And go back to the strongest habitual tendency, the knee-jerk reaction, is to go back to meditating on what we want. Our own needs. But at this point, there's nothing for it but simply to persevere. It, when, when you say to yourself or when you say to your teacher, this doesn't feel natural to me. It doesn't feel natural to me to meditate on kindness, kindness and to, to try to benefit sentient beings, to engage on a daily basis in acts of generosity, to stop thinking about what I need and think about the needs of others. This feels very unnatural to me, and, I, and it, it puts me in a bad mood. Well... That I, this is, I've actually heard this. You know, I, I, maybe I should chill out on this for a little while and wait till it feels more natural. Well, like I said, it will never feel more, feel more natural until you begin to change that habitual tendency. In the beginning, it will feel like a stretch. But there's nothing for it but to do exactly what the Buddha has taught. Meditate on the condition of sentient beings. Give rise to a kind of, in the beginning, it will be like pity. A kind of just consideration of what we're seeing. Uh, No one, I mean, you'd have to be a rock not to be moved by a child who has on a daily basis only 500 calories worth of rice. I mean, you'd have to be dead from the neck up not to be able to feel some pity or some compassion for that. So in the beginning, that's what it looks like. That's what our effort looks like. We stop and we think, just like these little children are being trained, that most of the children of the world eat like this. And so in the beginning, it makes us uncomfortable. And what we're going to feel at first is, I don't want to think about that. When I think about that, I get depressed. That's the first way that we'll react in that way. And, and, and well, that we will react with that information. And the tendency would be, I'd rather have a religion that's more cheerful. Well, okay, but you could do that with drugs. You could do that with alcohol. I mean, you know, 
couple of shots of the old bourbon and you can be as cheerful as you want to and you don't have to think about anybody. So why even bother with religion? Why not just skate through life with no care or concern? Because once again, according to the Buddhist teaching, you will suffer. You will suffer because of that. Not because you don't have what you need. But you will suffer because the mind is heavy and deluded and contracted and filled only with greed, grasping, neediness and self-concern. That is a heavy, weighted mind. It cannot be light, weightless, having that quality of quiescence which is necessary for a happy and blissful mind. So when we come to that point when we realize that in order to obtain happiness, we first have to meditate on subjects that make us sad. At that point, there's nothing for it but to simply rely on the teacher's teachings. We who have not been able to cook up a moment of happiness and are lost trying to figure out what in the world it's all about. We, on the other hand, should not rely at this point on our own guidance. Because our own guidance will teach us to do exactly what we have been doing. We will resist change. If you've been human for more than 15 years, you know that the only thing that changes a human being is necessity and suffering. We do not change willingly. We do not go there happily or lightly. We learn through terrible experiences. And sometimes we are forced into change. Now, in this case, rather than waiting until the time that you drink yourself into a coma or drug yourself into the ultimate party in the sky or engage in a life that is mindless, thoughtless, and heartless in every way, before you engineer yourself into that state of decay, into that level of unhappiness and suffering, follow the Buddhist teachings about this subject. Because the Buddha teaches us that although it's a little bit uncomfortable first to think in this way, ultimately, as you give rise to a heart full of love and a mind full of compassion, and lightness, a mind that embraces the world as its own, a mind that does not encase itself in its own flesh, but looks out and touches its environment with care and concern. If we follow the Buddhist teachings and we simply, on a, on a continuous basis, create that habitual tendency that eventually, over time, we will give rise to happiness. Like I say, it may not happen at first, and I have had students say to me, I'm miserable. I meditate on this stuff all the time, and it really bugs me. I'd rather forget about it. I'd rather, I'd rather forget that all sentient beings are suffering. I'd rather forget that even human existence, which is the pinnacle, really, of cyclic existence, is filled with old age, sickness, and death. I mean, it actually had human beings. These are people with brains, hopefully. They have foreheads. <laughs> so I assume that conceptual part is there. I mean, you don't know. It could be that you can shine a light in the eyes and it will come out the back of the head. I just don't know. But these are people with brains. They, they will come up to me and they will say, 
You know, I really prefer to forget about old age, sickness, and death. I really prefer to forget that all sentient beings are lost and wandering in, in suffering. And my answer to that is, try. <laughs> Check back in about 20 years. And let's see how the old age, sickness, and death part is coming. <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I have changed a lot in 20 years. <laughs> and it's not going to get any better. Human beings are, we are amazing. We are just amazing. On the one hand, we are the very Lord that we aspire to be non-dual with. On the one hand, we are that very primordial wisdom state, which is the kind of heaven we think we want to go to. In truth, we are the Buddha. And yet, while that is true, it is also true that we are the meanest, stubbornest, nastiest bunch of folks you've ever seen. Our habits are atrocious. We have no control over our minds. We do not train our minds in the methods that bring about happiness. And we're pretty arrogant about whether or not we want to. We are divisive. We are tricky. We are manipulative. And we will do anything to get out of the hard work that it takes to train the mind into producing the causes for happiness for oneself and for others. We'll do anything to get out of that. And we will do everything to stay in our particular comfort zone, including making ourselves blind to the suffering it leads us to. How is it that we are that? Again, the Buddha points us back to the idea of habitual tendency. If we just have this life to answer for, it's, pretty, it's relatively simple, comparatively speaking, to change the habits of this life. You know, we don't think that because, you know, any of us who have tried to quit drinking, smoking, you know, uh, quit uh, engaging in activity that's very difficult for us, uh, quit overeating, quit not exercising, any of us that have tried to quit our bad habits, you know that this is the most bone-crushing effort you could possibly engage in. Yet, comparatively speaking, because this is only the habit of one lifetime, something like that would be relatively easy. It is much more difficult when you stop to think that the habit of self-cherishing and ego-clinging, this habit we have given rise to since literally time out of mind. So the first thing that we have to do when we're deciding to really make a difference really make a change is to be patient with ourselves. It's going to take time. If we're still dumb enough to really continually look for instant gratification as the way, then it's going to take us a little bit longer and we're not going to be so happy about what we have to do. But hopefully many of us have watched our lives. It, it's strange how we can live our whole lives and not watch them at all. Because if you watch your life, you can learn from it. There are actually things there that you've been doing again and again and again that have brought no good result. If you watch, you can see. Supposing, however, 
we were able to begin to change our lives in such a way that we really dig in with these habitual tendencies. And at first, it is difficult. At first, it is a discipline. And at first, we have to do it on faith. But ultimately, over time, something changes. And what changes is the heaviness of one's being. Think about this in this way. Remember a time or a particular situation when you were filled with grief about something you had lost or something that you don't have. Now, each one of us have experienced that. The loss of some fortune, the loss of some love, the idea that there is no such thing in one's life. We have gone through days that have been unbearably difficult due to sadness and longing and depression. Each one of us, at one time or another, have had that experience, if we are honest. We have had that kind of heavy, bone-crushing day. Ask yourself, try to remember that day enough to insert yourself back into that time, only for a moment. Try to vibe out, try to feel how heavy the mind was at that time. Feel the weight of it. Even one's thoughts are heavy. There's a feeling of moving through molten lead or something really heavy and dense. Uh, anything that one has to do at that time is like pulling a terrible weight. The mind is terribly heavy, filled with sadness and terrible depression. Then leave that go and ask yourself to remember a time where, for whatever reason, you excelled yourself. You went beyond yourself. You went, and everybody must have had some time during the course of their lives when you did not consider your own comfort or well-being. When you did something that was not convenient, not easy, and not cheap. You went beyond what is simple for you, beyond what is usual for you, and just gave it up. Champed out completely, and then sat back and watched that because of your actions, someone was given a ticket to happiness, or was made happy, or was at least given a way to get through a situation that is really difficult that you upheld somebody, you were strong for someone, you gave love, you gave it up, you, you, you broke through your habitual tendency and didn't give love so that you could get love. You gave the love just so that you could give it. You really champed out. And then think about that, what that felt like. What were you like at that time? There was an incredible joy, an incredible lightness of being. A feeling that cannot be duplicated in any other way. A feeling that is both loud enough to make you want to stand on the roof, rooftops and shout out how wonderful this addition of love to the world actually is and how good that felt. And there's also a part of you that takes a simple joy like that home and is just quietly happy that you saw a smile on a face that wasn't there before. Try to put yourself back in that situation and remember what that felt like. 
Remember how your own problems got a lot smaller when that happened? Remember how the haunting refrain of this constant thrum of loneliness and alienation that you felt at that moment became lighter, quieter, wasn't in your ears at that time. Remember how you felt like maybe your life might actually mean something? At that moment, there was an incredible lightness of mind. The mind almost seemed to have the capacity to float on top of whatever particular experience one was having. This is no different from what the Buddha has taught. And what you're learning when you practice and study in this way, just contemplating, just thinking, as you're walking around, you don't have to sit down and light candles to think like this. You just think about it quietly. You know, when we really think about this and contemplate in this way, we begin to understand that this is what the Buddha's taught. These are the causes of happiness. And we can also understand what are the causes of unhappiness. And you must understand that these are the Buddha's teachings. There is the technology to be happy. You do not have to continue crying and moaning and gnashing your teeth for the rest of your life because you don't have what you want. You can create the causes by which all the doors are open and every potential happiness can come to you. Try this. Instead of grieving that you don't have the love in your life that you want, give love to others unselfishly. With no thought of what's going to come back to you, take care of somebody. Not somebody you're interested in marrying. Somebody that needs you. Somebody for whom, with whom there will be very little return. Somebody that may not give much back. Begin to practice like that. Begin to practice thinking of yourself as a vehicle by which the world can be made better. And do not let the fact that you are unhappy now or that you have seemingly no potency to make others happy, do not stop there. Do not even think about that. Remember that the Buddha has taught it's only a matter of habitual tendency. That's all it is. Create the habit of benefiting others. Create the habit of being a light in the world, the world of darkness. Create the habit of being a supportive, unconditionally loving vehicle by which others might obtain some relief. Begin to create that habit in some small and simple way and then let it grow. According to the Buddhist teachings, these are the causes for happiness. In our religion, we don't pick out one time of year where we buy gifts and we celebrate in such a way as to overcome grievances and let go of prejudices and let go of selfishness and be jolly and kind to others and try to love everybody. We don't have one special day like that. We don't have holidays like that. The Buddha Dharma is an ethical, intelligent, 
spiritual system that the Buddha has taught as a method or a path to cross the ocean of suffering. Because of that, it needs to be practiced every single day. Not twice a year, and not just on Sunday. But every single day. It becomes our lives. It becomes an experience that we do not let go of because it is, we are mated with it. We are as married to it as we are to anything else we can possibly be married to. And a Buddhist also knows, as the Buddha has taught, that in the beginning it will not be perfect. And we shouldn't burn hot and fast like paper, thinking, oh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be so kind today, you won't be able to believe it. And you're just kind to everybody. You cross old ladies that don't want to cross. <laughs> you, know, you feed people that are full. You just are just compulsively kind. I mean, don't, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about wacko craziness. We're talking about a consistent effort that's more like the way coal or aged oak burns. You know how they burn, they burn very warm, but in an even and slower way. And that's how you want to burn. That's how your heart wants to burn. That's how you, you give rise to compassion. In a stable, long-term, this is the way I'm going to live my life kind of way. Many of you have, uh, uh, during the course of your life, had certain physical problems. Certainly that has been the case with me. <clears throat> and periodically when we have physical problems, we look for quick fixes. We look for the ultimate healer. We look for the ultimate medicine. Uh, we get too fat and we get to our cholesterol is too high. And so we look for the ultimate diet. We go on a week-long juice fast. And then at the end of the juice fast, we go, well, here, you know, okay, well, here I am. And then we, you know, first thing we do after that is to, to eat three or four pieces if we can possibly get a hold of them. We, know, we, we think of that kind of idea, quick fixes, or we exercise and make ourselves completely sore to the point where we can't walk, and then we say, well, clearly this is not for me. <laughs> I mean, this is the way that we have done most of our lives in, in the effort to obtain happiness. This is not how we should approach this. Uh, many of us have discovered that what really needs to happen is a change in thinking and a change in lifestyle. That there isn't any one thing you can do to stop being sick and get healthy so much as there is a lifestyle that one can embrace. You realize that this is the way it is. The human body requires certain things. It requires sensible food. It requires plenty of rest. It requires work that we love. It requires something that inspires us and gives rise to excitement and love and caring. And we also need to exercise because the body is a machine. And whether we like to exercise or not, it doesn't matter. We know that this is what we need to do in order to keep ourselves healthy. And so we change our lives. Well, Buddhism is like that also. Eventually, when you are sick to death of being banged around and being constantly and chronically disappointed with your lives, and there's no better time to examine that than right around the holiday season. When we discover that and we are just sick to death of it, then maybe we get smart in the same way that we do about that ordinary aspect of our lives and say what's needed here is the change of mind, a change of lifestyle, a life that you can live with, a life that has compassion as its main guiding factor, a commitment that we would never do anything 
that does not bring happiness and well-being to others to the best of our ability. We end killing. We do not steal. We do not cause others to suffer by taking from others what belongs to them. We do not engage in conduct that brings about suffering, but instead we've changed our lives to become a vehicle by which all sentient beings might be made happy. And ultimately the Buddha teaches us that our own enlightenment, our own happiness, and the happiness of others, they go hand in glove. You really can't have one without the other. Ultimately, you cannot truly benefit sentient beings until you yourself attain enlightenment. So you owe it for the sake of sentient beings to practice accordingly in order to achieve enlightenment. <clears throat> but we practice for the sake of sentient beings. That is the method. And I can tell you this, that you can sit on a rock and meditate. You can look holy as any painting you've ever seen uh, indicating religious, religiously significant ideas. Uh, you can cast your eyes ever skyward. You can look, smell, and act like a saint. I don't know what saints smell like, actually. It's, it's kind of ambiguous, but you get the drift. And yet, none of that will make any difference. What actually makes a difference is that within oneself, one gives rise to compassion. Literally, no matter what you do, even if you learn all kinds of exotic practice and you do it really well, if you do not give rise to compassion, there is no enlightenment. If you do not give rise to the bodhicitta, there is no result from one's practice. Because you must understand that already you are the Buddha nature. It does not need to be established. The only, uniquely only display of the Buddha nature, Buddha nature is the great compassion, the great bodhicitta. And to the degree that we embrace that and make that part of our lives, part of our mind, part of our discipline, to that degree we move closer and closer to awakening to the natural state and that incredible lightness of mind that is the great bliss we are secretly all seeking. Once we have a taste of that, at that moment, that terrible longing, that terrible alienation, that terrible mantra of gimme, 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 I need, I need, I need, is finally silenced. Well, it doesn't mean that you won't need something during the course of your life. It doesn't mean that you'll have everything during the course of your life. But what you will have is a lightness of mind that is the cause and condition that creates the result of joy. What you have is a virtuous mind, and that truly, according to the Buddhist teaching, is a happy mind. And there is no other way to get there from here. So when you get tired of grabbing, and when you get tired of crying, when you get tired of needing, listen to what the Buddha has taught and practice accordingly. And please let that be 
your guidance on this holiday so that you'll know how to proceed so that when the holiday's finished, you haven't simply tried to cram everything into some maniacal kind of joy package or picture and you're not disappointed again. Protect yourself by understanding that happiness is not instant. It is a lifelong experience. It is a way of life that you yourself have the capacity to cultivate no matter what you actually have. So please think of that as a true Christmas blessing, a true Christmas greeting. And I hope that it makes you a lot happier at those dinners. <laughs> and a lot happier when you open those ties and those socks and those things that you are going to get that really aren't the things that you asked for. I really hope that it contributes to your happiness somewhat this season. And so Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, uh, whatever your particular holiday is that you are celebrating. And uh, don't forget that in our religion here, you can practice the holidays every day of the year by practicing compassion at every moment and every opportunity. So thank you very much and Merry Christmas. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T A R A.org.